Thank you once again to our sponsor, Gate One, with offices in Dublin, New York, and London. Gate One work with organizations all over the world to drive meaningful business transformation and change. You can find Gate One at gateoneconsulting.com. I would normally introduce our guests. You know who they are because we've done part one and part two. And I thought we'd do a very nice thing to introduce them with a friend of theirs who also wrote the preface for their book. So I'm going to hand it over to this guest in order to introduce our guests. Thanks for having me and and thanks for allowing me to introduce this uh, very important book to your listeners. This is kind of the unified field theory for for, uh, corporates. It kind of explains uh, stuff that's going on around that looks like the separate pieces. That is, why do some companies uh, kind of start and then fizzle out? And then why do some companies, others, figure out how to do hit after hit after hit? Um, Apple being a, a good example, at least under Steve Jobs. And the answer is, uh, I think, in, in Tushman and O'Reilly's work, this this notion of ambidexterity, which, by the way, I, I think I've told them, when I first heard the, the phrase, I hated that name. I mean, I, it was like a, a, a five-syllable word when like two would have, you know, sufficed. Because in English, it kind of means you're capable as a company of chewing gum and walking at the same time, meaning you're capable of doing two very different tasks. And companies, as they get larger, tend to emphasize that one task of execution, that is repeating existing processes and business models. But companies that actually are ambidextrous understand uh, that they really need separate organizations for uh, uh, learning and discovery. Um, And so ambidexterity requires companies to master new skills of ideation, incubation, and scaling. Um, And this is kind of what uh, Tushman and O'Reilly talk about, uh, recognizing the need for ambidexterity and building a organization that can do so is really a test of corporate leadership. And so, as I said, uh, exploitation pays your salary while exploration pays your pension. And companies that survive, um, I think, have a pretty good track record of doing both. Uh, so that's uh, that's my intro. And uh, and your listeners should pay rapt attention to everything they say. Steve talks about search, exploit, explore, et cetera, and encourages it with corporate explorers. We're going to talk about that later on when we have Andy on the show, Andy Bins. But let's get started on some of the things you teed up earlier in the series. One of those, Mike, was with you, was with Deloitte. And I thought we'd give the case study of Deloitte and then maybe, Charles, you'll unpack what they did to succeed in Deloitte. So over to you, Mike, to start. So, Aidan, thank you for that great introduction. Um, And uh, looking forward to this third session with my friend and colleague, Charles O'Reilly III. And I I do want to Shout out to Steve Blank for that magnificent and surprising uh, introduction to this third session. The key in this series with me and Charles and Andy is to take our research and the research from the field and make it useful for leaders to build organizations that can simultaneously get today's work done better than anybody in their particular product class and discover the future. That's the key idea with this multi-syllable word of structural ambidexterity. And again, I just want to really be clear as we start this third session, what Charles and I mean by structural ambidexterity, and again, there's a big literature on contextual ambidexterity. What we mean by structural ambidexterity 
is the leader and his or her team build completely different organizational architectures, some to exploit and some to explore. That's what we mean by ambidexterity. And as these senior leaders build ideation and incubation, every once in a while they fund the future and they go to scale with one of the exploratory experiments. That's what Charles and I mean by structural ambidexterity. It's high differentiation, splitting the past from the future, targeted integration where there's stuff to leverage. And again, we've been pretty consistent about this. When there's nothing to leverage, you spin these exploratory things out and really strong senior teams. And that's been what was behind uh, AGC and Microsoft and DaVita in this last session is really strong senior teams that can live into the contradictions associated with both exploit and explore. So that's what we mean by structural and by dexterity. One example that I'm particularly excited about is this notion of high-end strategic consulting. Um, I did this case with Deloitte Consulting, which is a very lovely example of a successful incumbent. In this case, it's Deloitte Consulting. Building an organization that could continue to do consulting in the old-fashioned way. And again, the old-fashioned way was you hire, by the way, they, they get into this by buying Mike Porter's monitor firm. And they hire these brilliant MBAs and they do bespoke high-end consulting. That's what I think about as exploit at Deloitte. Under Matt David uh, in 2019, pressed by changes in technology and innovation, in particular open innovation and gig freelance talent, Matt said, our clients are looking for new ways of doing high-end consulting that is better, faster, and cheaper. And Matt and his senior leadership community, uh, Amy Fair, said, we've got to experiment into the future before McKinsey, before Accenture. Um, and they hosted a whole bunch of experiments, Aiden, within Deloitte. Of those like 40 experiments in Deloitte on, again, how to do different kinds of consulting, senior level consulting, one of them was, one of the experiments was called Pixel. Balaji Bondili had this insight that high-end consulting projects could be pixelated. And what he meant by pixelated is you could break out a problem for Bank of America or, or for Citigroup and break that strategic challenge into components. And then you integrate those components in front of a client. And Balaji's insight was circa 2020, these modularized pieces of a high-end consulting project could be freelanced to highly specialized talent, AI talent, machine learning talent, that would, in a hundred years, would never work for Deloitte. And so they, they Balaji tried this experiment where they vetted these platforms and they worked with lead users to pixelate a lead user project and they sent out 
the pieces of that work to the freelance crowd. And Balaji integrated it in front of the client. Everybody, this is a, in terms of the innovation stream stuff we talked about in that first module, this is a complete, this is on the right-hand side of that continuum. It's a completely different way of doing senior level consulting. Where you break a project into pieces, those pieces go to the crowd, different platforms, and they're integrated in front of the client such that their projects are solved better, faster, cheaper. The beauty of Balaji Bandili, unlike some of the negative examples that we could talk about maybe later on, is Balaji, who's like a low-level manager. He's one of our corporate explorers. While he's supported by Amy Fair, the CEO, and by Matt David, the head of consulting, he's running one of these experiments. So he, he gets top-down coverage. And Balaji, unlike some of the negative examples who are seen as threats, Balaji goes out of his way to the senior level consultants who first react to pixelization as an identity threat. Oh, gee whiz, this is embarrassing. This is not what we do as Deloitte consultants. He says, hey, everybody, I got something that works. You know, give it a try. It's better, it's faster, it's less expensive, and it's a complement to your high-end, bespoke, strategic consulting work. The beauty of Balaji is he doesn't start with a revolution in Deloitte Consulting. He starts in the analytics piece. He really successful. He goes to the audit piece, really successful. And as soon as these relatively negative consultants say, hey, wow, this works, they then sell Balaji's pixel. This becomes a social movement, what we call a social movement at Deloitte, where all of a sudden, four, five, six, seven, eight, twelve, a hundred partners say, I want this and I want it now. It is now coded as a complement to their work. So this is a lovely example of what Charles and I call structural ambidexterity. It's ideation and incubation off on the side. They do these experiments and the senior leaders say, hey, we're going to go to scale. And Balaji is our wonderful corporate explorer who sells it and comes across as a, I'm here to help. He comes across as someone who understands your resistance and will help you get over it. This is one of the very rare examples of top-down and bottom-up change really quickly in an incumbent organization that has done really well. Mike, beautiful case study. And as you said there, we don't have many successful ones that show all the elements of what you talk about and the playbook that you give in all your work. And maybe, Charles, you might put some shape on this because that's that case study looks at incubate, ideation, incubation, and scaling. Scaling is where many, many organizations fall, but also there's kind of five key ingredients that you've identified in Lead and Disrupt in particular for successful ambidexterity within organizations. Maybe you'll put that framework as a kind of a, I, I, the way I think about it is, you remember the, those old slides we used to write on and put them, project them onto the screen? <laughs> let's, let's place that over Mike's case study. Okay. 
Well, <clears throat> I hope you'll uh, you'll continue a bit with uh, Andy in talking about Deloitte because, as Mike indicated, it's a it's a great example of a corporate explorer. And my, the way Mike told the story, it sounded like this kind of unfolded in uh, in a, a series of successes. <clears throat> but in fact, uh, Balaji, you know, struggled at different times, and I think there are some lessons about what it takes to be a successful corporate explorer. Remember, we we talked about lead and disrupt is really a story of how do you design organizations. Corporate explorer is a how, how do you drive innovation from the bottom up. And and Bology has some real learnings, I think that uh, that I hope Andy will get into. So let's let's put a little structure on this. So you know, over the last thirty plus years, Mike and I have seen lots of organizations that have tried ambidexterity, you know, some some have succeeded as we talked about AGC, for instance, uh, uh, you know, the Japanese uh, companies successfully moving into a material science. You know, we've seen a bunch of failures, companies like uh, Kodak that, that had all the tech digital imaging technology, but failed while Fujifilm actually succeeded. And so from all those experiences, we've identified what we think are five sort of major elements to, that you need to be successful uh, at driving ambidexterity. Mike actually touched on the first with, with uh, Balaji. Senior leader support. The senior leader, the senior team has to be aligned. And he, here's why. You, you can imagine a situation, and perhaps Mike can talk a little bit about Havas uh, as an example of this. You can imagine a situation where a senior leader says, we have to explore. But the rest of the senior team is not aligned to that. And then what happens, even though a senior person, <clears throat> maybe even a CEO, is saying we have to we have to experiment, we have to explore, what you find is the other leaders are undermining that. When that happens, people in the organization look up, they see this 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 conflict, everything slows down, politics emerge and people don't don't cooperate. So the senior team has to be aligned with shared goals and metrics. If the senior team, even if they intellectually agree with the exploration, if they are rewarded on very different things, then it gets very difficult for them to cooperate. If we have time, we could talk a little bit about what we learned from IBM and how IBM was able to, to, to drive innovation. And part of the success there was coming up with some common incentives for the senior team. So the first structural element is a, a senior team with a clear ambidextrous strategy that legitimates being in both the explore and the exploit world with shared incentives. The second is some overarching vision and values. If you're gonna ask people to uh, uh, cooperate, to support and explore a unit, especially as it begins to scale and takes resources away from the existing business, there has to be some sense that we are all playing on the same team. And so this notion of common vision and values for the corporation. Now, as we talked in our second episode, different alignments require different cultures. And so the explore unit has a different culture, needs a different culture than the exploit unit. What holds them together is this overarching vision or, or sense of purpose or identity for the larger organization. 
that's a senior management task to actually articulate that. We saw that with Microsoft, with Satya Nadella coming up with this notion of growth mindset to pull everything together. That's the second. The third is this notion of separate architectures. We've seen a number of cases where there was an attempt to do explore and exploit uh, through cross-functional teams. Our experience is that does not work. And it doesn't work because you're asking people to do things that are uh, potentially against what their short-term interests are. So separate architectures, that is separate capabilities, separate metrics, separate structure, and separate cultures. Having those separate architectures, that's the third element. The fourth element, which is especially important with when it comes to scaling, is this notion of having a, a, a integration mechanism that makes sure that as the Explorer unit begins to scale, they get the assets and capabilities they need from the rest of the organization, whether it's people or access to customers or use of brand or what, whatever it is. <clears throat> if you don't have that, then what happens is what we see are ideation and incubation, maybe successful incubation, but then as, as they the Explorer unit requires additional resources, they don't get it. So partly this is having senior management uh, oversight. So senior managers can intercede and make sure that the scaling unit gets the resources. So the fourth element is this <clears throat> targeted integration mechanism. And the fifth element is a leadership team that's willing to persist at this, not for one or two years, but for four or five, seven years. If we go back to the AGC case, you know, material science you, you, it takes five, seven years to develop uh, a new material science. If you, if you try to uh, generate a successful business in two or three years, that often doesn't work. You're going to, I think, have a chance to talk with TJ Rogers. You know, Cyprus had a very interesting, what they call a federation of entrepreneur. Uh, it's a, basically an explore and exploit. And one of the issues there is they had a two-year time frame for coming up with profit. It turns out in one of the cases at Cyprus that worked, but often two years is much too short. So having a, a leadership team that is persistent over three, four, five, seven years, sometimes that's difficult because you see teams, turnover of senior teams. One of the things that has made AGC successful is that Hiraisan, their current CEO, was the chief technology officer under Shimamura-san. So as Hiraisan takes over the senior team, they are persisting at this. So they've got a 10-year window to do this. So those are the five things. A senior team and a clear strategy that's, that justifies a common vision and values to legitimate cooperation, separate architectures, an integration mechanism that makes sure they get the resources in a long enough time frame to make that work. In our experience, that's that's what it takes. Mike, do you want to come in there? Yeah, I just want to put a, a, a point on Charles's uh, five-point articulation of, the, of the, the sort of summary of what we've learned on executing structural and by dexterity. The most difficult thing to do in our experience 
is not the structure, not the targeted integration, not the overarching vision and values. I think the most difficult thing for a senior leadership team to do is to hold that persistence that Charles just described in the face of contradictions, in the face of owning both exploit and explore. And usually senior leaders talk a good game, but when it comes time to managing the contradictions in their team of having the persistence to do explore and exploit over time, either explore wins or exploit wins, but the ability to host and live into paradox or contradiction is to me the genius of great leaders. Their ability to own and live into the strategic requirement of living for today and living for tomorrow. And again, that to me is the secret sauce is not the structure and not the metrics and not the systems, but the team that can hold that contradiction. You've sent me in a different direction here. And if you don't want to cover this case, please tell me. But I thought one of the great cases that you cover in Lead and Disrupt Part 2 behind me here was the great case of Mike Lowry in Mises because he faced this firsthand. He was like, he set up an Explore unit. The company then comes under massive financial pressure in 2008. And he, and he maintains, he he despite this huge pressure from his colleagues and his friends within the organization, he maintains, I'd love you to share this. Yeah. So that example of Mike Lowry um, is his like persistence and insistence in his senior team that they were going to play these multiple games simultaneously. Mike had the ability to shape the power and politics in his team to be able to have his organization do both. That's a positive example. We talked earlier about Havas. Havas went through all of Charles's checklists. But what David Jones couldn't do is he couldn't get his team to own old-fashioned advertising and new advertising at the same time. The powerful forces of inertia, we do advertising the old-fashioned way, trumped this new way of doing advertising. He was unable... David Jones was unable to do what Mike Lowry did uh, at Mises uh, and what um, uh, Matt David did at Havas is to forge a team, senior team that could live into contradiction. That to me is the real genius of great leaders is in being able to do both with their team and then down into the organization with these inconsistent architectures. Mike's example of Hamas is a great example. Let me give you a little bit more detail on that because Mike skimmed over the surface. So Havas is a traditional big French advertising firm. You know, you a company comes, they spend lots of money, put a bunch of creatives on it, come up with an ad campaign. This notion of open source innovation, of actually putting out uh, ideas to the crowd and, and the crowd coming up with uh, uh, new ideas, their CEO saw that and said, this is potentially the future. We have to do this. And they went out and they bought a company called Victor and Spoils. So he sees the future. He sees Explore and Exploit. He brings this in and he takes the CEO of Victor and Spoils and he makes him the chief of innovation. And then, as Mike said, uh, he never gets his senior team aligned, either on the strategy or on managing the dynamics. 
And of course, in the end, it fails. Victors and spoils fails. Everything fails. He got, he understood what he needed to do, but he couldn't execute it. I, I want to pick up on Charles's point, and I need our listeners to get this. David Jones had a brilliant strategy way ahead of the other advertising agencies, like total brilliance. John Windsor, who's our corporate explorer, is going to help this old line advertising agency do a new way of doing advertising agency. New way of doing advertising. It turns out that David Jones couldn't hold his senior team, couldn't hold this dual strategy with his senior team. That's one. And two, unlike Balaji, who was seen as a helper, as a supporter at Deloitte, John Windsor was like in their face. John Windsor said, hey, you creatives, you're dinosaurs. I'm the future. And he generated massive resistance because, and I've said this to John, he was a jerk. At that stage in his career, inside Havas, he's fed into all those antibodies. So when you have a senior leader who cannot hold tension in his or her team, and you have a corporate explorer who's in their face, that's a recipe for lousy structural ambidexterity. And come back to that when you talk to Andy, because one of the brilliant things about Balaji was his way of not getting in people's faces, of being resilient, of sharing credit. <clears throat> if other people said this was my idea, Balaji was okay with that. And so Andy will talk about kind of some of the things that it takes to be successful as a, as a corporate explorer. So I was just writing that down. <laughs> I'll, come back to, I'll come back to that with Andy. I, I think you've teed me up beautifully, and I just wanted to pull out a few strings. One of the things is you talk about the four cardinal sin, sins, but we'll come back to that because one of the cases you talk about as well as BT, so Verweyen in, in, in British Telecom, the big transformation there. But one of the things he did was realize the flaw in his approach, and he reminded me of this brilliant Tolstoy quote that says, everybody wants to change the world but no one wants to change him or herself. And I found Verweyen realized the error of his ways, which was a very didactic approach, telling people what to do, raising the corporate antibodies. But then he listened to the feedback from people about his style and changed it, got a coach, etc. This is a This is a really, really important aspect that is often overlooked, and I was so glad you covered it in the book. Yeah, I, I just want to pick that point up, Aidan. Thank you for raising that. I think when you look at the sweep of the work that Charles and I have done over the years and now with Andy in Corporate Explorer, at the end of the day, it's about reinventing firms, just the way Nadella was reinventing Microsoft. But I think what we've learned over the years is you can't reinvent the firm or renew the firm without personal renewal. And the genius of Ben Vivian was at some point in the change process, hey, wait a minute, I'm part of the problem. And he actually gets help. And Andy was part of that. Partly Ben gets help and shifts his leadership style. So he's able to build what we now call an ambidextrous organization at BT. I think the great leaders of the world, and you saw that with Charles and uh, Nadella, 
he was an old, not old, he had been a veteran Microsoft engineer. And when he becomes the CEO, he both, the agenda is both to renew Microsoft and to renew himself as a leader. And you actually hear him talk about that personal renewal and organization renewal. That is super rare, where senior leaders say, yeah, we've got to renew our firm proactively. And part of that is renewing myself and my senior team. So we spent much of our initial insight uh, into this phenomenon of ambidexterity came from working for a number of years with IBM. One of the people uh, at IBM was a fellow named Nick D'Onofrio, who was their chief technology officer. And Nick has a great phrase, actually. He used it for a book he wrote called, If Nothing Changes, Nothing Changes. And, you know, that's what Mike is suggesting, that if the leaders don't change, then nothing changes. I love that. And I'm going to quote a a little piece from the book here, because this makes perfect sense. You said, by the time a person has achieved the position of a senior leader, they have had a career behaving in ways that made them successful. So in a way, I I think about that phenomenon in the brain called myelination, where you learn certain patterns of behavior, and they've made you successful. And, And that's why the part I think is so important about personal renewal is, you need to unlearn those ways in order to er- learn how to explore again because you've made your way to the top based on exploitation. That's the difficulty. Yeah, that, that, is, that is so right. Um, I, I think we talk a, a, a bunch in Winning Through Innovation. I think it's Winning Through Innovation about Ingrid Johnson, uh, who was this great leader uh, at a South African bank. And Ingrid was a great exploiter in our language. And when she came time for her to renew and to reinvent business banking, she was like a hardware kind of character. She's not making a whole lot of progress. And once she learns from her colleagues that, wait a minute, she has to learn both hardware and software, you see her renew herself even as NedBank renews itself as a bank. Then Ingrid is able to move from NetBank to Old Mutual and now from Old Mutual to Sun Life as a fully baked, fully cooked leader, always renewing herself as the context shift. But that notion of part of our work on dynamic capabilities is both at the firm level, the leader level, and his or her team's level. And it's the intersection of those three pieces that drive this notion of innovation streams. I, I think that this part is so important. And, and just to share with our audience, we're, re- we're recording on Easter Monday here, which is also that aspect of renewal in it. So there's a little bit of lovely serendipity to do with that as well. And for, for those people who follow the show on a regular basis, you'll be familiar that I wear a pin. I, I happily f- had this pin waiting for these guys for a long time. It says explore on it. So this is a perfect serendipity bringing it all together. Now, the guys mentioned a, a couple of times IBM. IBM is one of those stories that brings so many elements of your work together and particularly the scale and the repeatable processes because this is the hard piece I think a lot of organizations um, struggle with is going to go, give me a playbook. And IBM, I know people will go, oh, yeah, but that's IBM. They're massive. But they were in dire straits when this work began 
and they managed to restructure, realign, recalibrate the organization and putting in the ideas of ideation, incubation, and indeed scaling, which is where so many people flounder. Yeah. L- let me start. And then Charles, you jump in, please. Uh, that notion of building an organization to learn how to do this. It, IBM under Sam Palmisano is a just super example of that, that, that our work oh, in the early 2000s with Sam and Bruce Harold, they created this executive program that Charles and I were the co-chairs of this executive program where we collectively learned about structural ambidexterity. And we built these strategic leadership forums where they would bring teams to campus and they would learn about innovation streams. They would learn about ambidexterity and they would learn about leading punctuated change. And they applied it to IBM and they came up with their own recipe. And these strategic leadership forums flowered and they were able to do this notion of what we now call ambidexterity over and over and over again. Partly it was top down, partly it was Sam and Bruce, and partly it was bottom up because of the people who came to these SLFs were the general managers of the different pieces of IBM. And that was an example of a large firm reinventing itself and learning how to do it over maybe a four-year period. I don't want to talk about what happened post uh, Sam and Gene Remedi's run, but that's a really great example of a large organization learning how to do innovation streams, renewal, ambidexterity, and change through a top-down, bottom-up process that Charles and I had the unbelievable benefit of being a part of. Well, let me put that in context a little bit. In 2000, Lou Gerstner was the CEO of uh, IBM, and he had come in 93. And I think by most accounts, he saved IBM. In 93, Wall Street wanted uh, uh, IBM broken up and sold off in pieces, and and Gerstner saved the company. But in 2000, he was getting ready for their annual strategic planning process, and he took a bunch of plans home over the weekend, and he came in, and he was irritated. And he called Bruce Harold, who is his uh, head of strategy, into his office, and he threw these plans across the desk, and he said, this is crap. He said, you call this strategy? And he was angry because they were under margin pressure and all the strategic planners were cutting back on investment in the future. And Gerstner said to to Harold, he said, I want you to, I'm tired of us missing markets. I want you to do a study of all the technologies, all the products that we developed that we didn't make any money on. And Bruce's organization did this amazing study where they identified 29 separate technologies that the IBM company had developed that they had failed to commercialize. And they did an analysis and they, uh, on why they missed these markets. And they missed them for two big reasons. One is they were so obsessed with their existing customers, all their metrics, all their mind share was focused on today's customers. They had no systematic way of looking into the future. Now, be clear, R&D develops technologies and products. R&D does not develop new businesses. So they lacked insight. They also lacked leaders who could run these new entrepreneurial businesses. So based on that, Bruce and Mike and I helped them develop this strategic leadership form that Mike described. 
that drove what they call the Emerging Business Opportunity Process, the EBO process. The EBO process was an ideation, incubation, scaling process. They had a process to come up with new ideas, ideation. They would set up these new teams. Uh, these new teams would run the experiments. Some would fail, some would succeed. And if it looked like they were going to succeed, they would begin to scale these processes. They had a disciplined scaling process, which included the five elements that we talked about for, for structural ambidexterity. We tracked them for a period of six years. During those six years, those EBOs generated $15 billion in top-line growth. It was a huge success. It was this, this machine of of constantly exploring and exploiting. So it's a, it's a lovely example of the five elements that we talked about. One of the things that I, I wanted to ask you, and this is kind of more out of personal interest because I see this fail a lot of times with people. So you're within a, a corporate incumbent, you're, in, you're the corporate explorer and you've, you've stumbled upon a product that really works You've got some people supporting you. You've got some people pretending to support you in order to keep the enemy close, etc. And you need to survive success. And this is the scaling point. Like this is where we're saying that you flounder at this point. And those people don't know what to do because they don't, they're not political animals based on the exploit model. They're explorers. And as a result, they often get quashed by the antibody just at the finish line. And if you had any suggestions for those people, it'd be really, really great because they're the listener to this show. So you should read Corporate Explorer and you should listen to the next episode with Andy Benz because that's exactly what Andy's yeah. going to talk about. Yeah. That, that is a really important point, Aiden. And that's the reason why we did the Corporate Explorer is this top down is not enough. It also takes this bottom up and the ability of the biology bondiles to be able to forge those, be able to manage down, manage his peers and manage up. So this, this notion of building a social movement is, and having corporate explorers do that um, is the point that our corporate explorer book is all about. But again, but again, you cannot do that without senior level support. You cannot have a successful biology without Matt David providing the infrastructure for that. There's a great case study again that you give. It's senior level support in par excellence by Tom Curley and USA Today. And it really speaks to one of the questions that I get a lot in my job as a consultant is, do we spin out or do we not spin out? To spin out or to not spin out? And Clay Christensen's camp, the series we just did, would say you have to have a separate organization, the corporate outpost. But you kind of said, well, there, there's two ways of doing that. You, you might do that at the start, but then you need to actually spin it back in again. And I think this is a really important aspect because for one of the best things I learned from your work is you will need capabilities, the corporate knowledge of the organization, the incumbent, in order to scale the thing that you're trying to start. And that's the advantage for you over an, a startup that doesn't have those capabilities that can scale the scale the, the the caterpillar into a butterfly in the future. We learned that from Tom Curley, that the beauty of 
and for your listeners, Tom was one of the first newspaper executives to take his paper, that was USA Today, into the world of online. And rather than spin out usatoday.com, he said, hey, wait, we've got a brand to leverage. We've got content to leverage. I don't want to spin usatoday.com out. I want to build a team that can own both news that is done over a news cycle and instantaneous news, old-fashioned journalism and new journalism. And Tom had the insight, hey, let's build a team that could do both. That notion that Charles mentioned earlier of leverage is crucial. If there's nothing to leverage, you don't want to deal with the pain of structural ambidexterity. But if there's stuff to leverage, like the brand, wow, you want to be able to host under what we call the ambidextrous leader, be able to host both explore and exploit. And eventually, when you do the ideation and incubation, eventually you're going to go to scale. And all of USA Today is going to be online eventually. So at the in USA Today, the, Tom Curley was the publisher. He had the newspaper, but he also had a set of, uh, they were part of Gannett at the time, and they also had a set of 27, 28 television stations. So he has an online business, he has television stations, and he has uh, the newspaper. And the assets and capabilities that they could leverage were not just not just the brand, but they could leverage the news generation capacity from the newspaper, but they could generate video from the television and local news from the uh, television stations. They would put that online. So he kept them separate initially. So that was this notion of separate architectures. Uh, but as, as the world moved more towards online, then they began to integrate their graduate in IBM terms, their, their newsrooms and put them together. And that's what IBM does. They have a graduate, they have a disciplined graduation process where as a business begins to scale, they make a decision about integrating it back into the new business. And they have a specific process where at the time they had a specific process to gradually move this back in. Let me give you one more example of that separation um, for your listeners. We just did a piece of work at a large Italian energy company called NL. It was a regulated monopoly for years. And under this fellow, Francesco Starace, they built NL Green Power, where NL was a brown energy firm, fossil fuel. The board said to Starace, as a veteran leader inside NL, why don't you build a green business? The green business was initially spun out. And it was really successful for NL. NL Green Power was initially spun out. When Starace became CEO of the group, he said, what are you crazy? We got to bring NL back in because we're going to leverage that technology. We're going to leverage this green to both do green and to get brown eventually to be green, to be more efficient and green. So the, he said, the last thing we're going to do is to keep EGP spun out. We've got to have it inside because that is going to be the fuel. That's going to be, we're going to infect NL 
with EGP. And that's the that's one of the ways, and there's much more we can talk about. But between 2014 and 2022, NL essentially is both a brown company, way more efficient brown company, and an amazingly green company. And basically, the green is infecting all of the brown organizations. So this is this amazing, sustainable organization. You know, again, it's easy for us as academics at a high level to, to kind of make these sort of observations, but it gets very tricky when you try to actually do it. Let me, let me give you a Cisco example. Cisco, a number of years ago, had what they call a spin-out, spin-in process. They, they recognized the need to separate these businesses. And so they would take emerging businesses and they would literally spin them out as separate companies. And then they would spin them back in. They would buy them back. The problem was when they brought them back, they paid such high uh, compensation to these people that it created real antipathy within the larger organization. That is, if you were a, an entrepreneurial engineer within Cisco, you, you would say, well, why would I stay within Cisco? I need to get myself into one of these spin outs. I can make a ton of money when they spin me back in. I'll go off and, you know, I'll buy a winery and, you know, live, live the good life. So. It's easy to, to say this. It gets very complicated, as you know, Aiden, since you work with companies around these issues. Getting integrating them back in is is often very complicated. I thought it'd be really interesting contrast because contrast is our brain works really well with contrast. One of the great cases you talk about, you bring two together and you kind of go, look, these two are similar strategy, but very, very different in execution. So we had Flex, Elementum, and then we had SAP's attempt with Business by Design, which again, was a great strategy, but poorly executed. So the SAP story is the following. In, in 2006, 2007, SAP, the big German software maker, uh, you know, they were very successful selling these big $20, $30 million ERP systems. But they had done a strategic review and they realized that the global market for these new, these big systems was flat and going to decline over the next decade. And so their CEO at the time, Henning Kagerman, said, we, we have to get into growth businesses. And it turns out there was a growth business. It was the small and medium-sized business. Uh, but you weren't going to sell these big $20 million ERP systems. You were going to sell uh, software as a service. And they had a product called Business by Design that was targeted at that, at that uh, segment. From a strategic sense uh, perspective, it made perfect sense. They tried to do this using a cross-functional team deep in the organization, big functional organization, marketing, sales, engineering, you know, quality, you know, the typical functional organization. And they tried to do this with a, a, a cross-functional team. They ultimately failed. Now, the strategy was the right strategy. And so they went out and they bought actually two companies. They spent three billion bucks to buy success factors and another uh, nine million bucks to buy concur technologies. Today, they're successful in this business, but their original business failed. And again, it was, it was a case of not having structural separation of these two and not having a process to integrate and get the resources they needed. So that's, that's a a, 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 a successful strategy, a failed implementation. The Flex example, uh, Flex, Flextronics, what used to be Flextronics, 
big electronic contract manufacturing company for Apple and Hewlett Packard. It is the epitome of Six Sigma incremental improvement. They had a software product that integrated a lot of their data and they tried to do it internally and they realized that they, they couldn't make it work. So they separated it out as a company called Elementum. They leveraged the brand, they leveraged their data, they funded Elementum and Elementum has grown into a, a pretty successful company now, but they did it by keeping them separated. One of the last things I'd love you to share is the the cardinal sins of this. So again, I, I mentioned that we, we learn often best by contrast and we've seen the five core elements of ambidexterity, ambidexterity but then perhaps some of the cardinal sins that you suggest CEOs and leaders avoid when they're in embarking on this journey. To, to, great, great, Aiden. To me, the as I think about our work at Change Logic with firms and my teaching in um, our advanced management program here, to me the biggest cardinal sin is for leaders to do the strategy work, Aiden, and to do the discipline work on strategy and in our language is living into these innovation streams and articulating the strategy and indeed articulating the structure, but not having the courage to build a team that can live into contradiction, not having the uh, emotional maturity to articulate an overarching vision that will permit explore and exploit to coexist. That to me is the cardinal sin, is the leader who gets the strategy, gets the structure, comes really close to living into structural ambidexterity, but doesn't have a team that can hold the contradiction. And personally, the leader does not hold his or her team accountable. And finally, a cardinal sin is to be not able to renew yourself, to think your same leadership style that got you to be a great, in our language, exploit organization will not take you into an exploit and an explorer organization. Your ability to renew yourselves and being comfortable with passion this world's great container firm that we've talked about a whole lot earlier on, that takes an emotional maturity. And to me, a cardinal sin is having senior leaders not being able to live into both and having the maturity to have an overarching purpose that permits explore and exploit to happen simultaneously. Let me just underscore what Mike said. You know, we've been doing this now for 30 plus years. We've been privileged to work with some great senior leaders around the world. At the end of the day, winning through innovation, lead and disrupt, corporate explorer, their books, not, not so much about strategy and structure and culture, their books about leadership. As Mike was saying, you know, that, that to make this work requires leaders who can, can do these things and hold what Mike talks about as contradictions to do to do the explore and the exploit. It really is, it really is uh, on leaders. The failures are not failures of technology. We have seen companies like Kodak that had the great technology that failed. 
it's it's a story of leadership. It's failures of leadership, Aiden, and and I think that something to do with courage is being courageous enough for you to be able to say, "Hey, we got to button up the ship and." old-fashioned energy at NL and having the courage to say, hey, we're also going to transform into a renewable company. Partly it helps save the world. That's like super courageous of Francesco Storace is to be able to live in the past and celebrate that and to say, we're going to reinvent that firm, in this case, for renewable energy. That issue of courage and passion particularly when we earlier we talked about proactive and reactive change, the ability to take your firm into the future proactively really takes courage. It didn't take a whole lot of courage for Lou Gerstner to lead change at IBM because this is like a dead duck organization, but to lead proactive change, wow, that, that is particularly courageous. I pulled a couple of quotes that are just my way of saying thanks to you guys. And then I'm going to hand it to you guys to just to think about if you were stuck in a lift with a leader and they were trying to save their organization, they could see the Janus eyes looking forward. were like going, we're in trouble in the future. What you would say to them? So if you had one line in the lift to those guys, what would you say, guys and gals? The quote I pulled, one from elsewhere. So this is from the great English mathematician. Alfred North Whitehead, who said, "The art of progress is to pervert. The art of progress is to preserve order amid change, and to preserve change amid order." I thought that was beautiful for your work. And then the quote I pulled from your book is, "We suggest that renewal is not an event, a set of steps, or a program, but an approach to learning that is anchored on an overarching aspiration." But beyond an emotionally engaging aspiration, there are a set of practices that we recommend to leaders that will put them on the path toward an organization learning mindset. That aspect of mindset is absolutely core. That's it for me, apart from to say my absolute gratitude to you guys. I'm so grateful and privileged to have spent this time with you. And I look forward to the session with Andy. And I'm sure we guys will will meet again in the future. And I think it's beautiful and fitting that we did this on Easter Monday, the season of renewal. So over to you guys to close this series from your perspective. So let me close. I was reading uh, PwC, the the big consulting accounting firm, does an annual CEO survey, and they surveyed more than 4,000 CEOs. And of those 4,000, they report that 40% of these CEOs report that their organization will no longer be economically viable within the next 10 years. 40%. If leaders don't think about being ambidextrous, they're going to end up on some academics list of failed companies. Mike drop. <laughs> and th- let me thank you for pulling Charles and I together and connecting your great show your great podcast to the work that Andy's doing, our new book, uh, Corporate Explorer. But let me sort of end with this um, this knowing-doing gap. I, I think our field knows a lot about innovation streams and strategy and ambidexterity. The doing part is really hard. 
And at the end of the day, I think what we're asking leaders to be clear about is the purpose of their firm. Why do you exist? And being able to take that purpose and then building the architectures to exist both for today and for tomorrow. That tomorrow part, the today part is pretty easy. Leaders are great at that. The tomorrow part is super difficult and requires that that courage to live into that purpose. So that's what I would say in that little elevator is like, who are you and what do you do? And do you have the courage to build your organization, not just for today, but for today and tomorrow? And I think in our various research and books, we provide some tools to help your listeners live for both today and for tomorrow. Beautiful. Authors of Leaders Lead and Disrupt and Winning Through Innovation amidst a host of others, Charles O'Reilly III and Michael Tushman, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. Thank you, Aiden. Good luck, everybody. You can help the innovation show by helping our sponsors. Our sponsor for this series is Gate One. Gate One, our consulting service that work with some of the world's leading organizations to drive meaningful change. They have offices here in Dublin, in New York, and in London. And you can find Gate One at gateoneconsulting.com.